The True Tone Lounge podcast features audio-only versions of our video interviews. To view those, please visit truetonelounge.com or our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash truetonefx. Zach Childs and welcome to the True Tone Lounge. In a town full of amazing sidemen and vocalists, Chris Rodriguez stands at the top of the heap. He's performed with everyone from Michael McDonald to Garth Brooks and Kelly Clarkson to Vince Gill and on and on and on. We're so glad to have him part of the show today. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Well, cool. So take us from the Bronx to Miami to Nashville. I was born in the city, um, raised in the Bronx, and my mom and dad are, are what I call West Side Story Puerto Ricans. Right? Nice. So I'm, I'm actually the first person in my entire family that was actually born on the mainland. Okay. And my dad came over in the late 40s. My mom came over in the mid-50s. I was born the year JFK got elected president. Mm-hmm. Grew up in the Bronx. I thought I was going to be a, a Broadway-ish singer because my mom and dad always had, like, soundtracks. Right. To those great musicals from there that There was era. always yeah. great musicals. I mean, it's like West Side Story, Kiss Me Kate, Fiddler on the Roof, you mm. know, Sound of Music, all that stuff. Really wanted to be Robert Goulet when I was five. I, yeah. I learned how to sing with a covered tone and show tunes. And then I go to first grade and I meet my best friend, who becomes my best friend, and he's like, you don't know about the Beatles? (laughs) And that was like every day after school till fourth grade. I mean, I didn't even know anything else existed. You know, it was probably, I was probably 10 when I figured out who everybody else was. And then it was Jackson 5 and Marvin Gaye. And I'm 13 and my dad says, hey, we're moving to Miami in two and a half weeks. He had a job offer. That's short notice. (laughs) Short notice. Talk about, like, leaving the concrete jungle for, essentially, we moved to North Miami Beach into a duplex two blocks away from Criteria. Wow. And I was very aware of Criteria at the time because by that point, I'm, like, reading over every album and liner notes, like... So I'm like, oh, that's the place where Grand Funk did We're an American Band and where the Allman Brothers and where, and, you know, Eric Clapton had done, you know, yeah. 461 Ocean Boulevard. So I get to Miami kicking and screaming, but within a day, I'm in a band. Yeah. And I stayed in that band uh, the whole time I was in high school. And we got uniforms and we had business cards and we were w- working. I made, you know... 100, 150 bucks on every weekend as a kid. Yeah. You know, and that was my, that was life in, uh, in Miami through high school. It was like, a, it's like the movie Almost Famous. It was like kind of that period, classic rock and 
band in, in a garage on every corner, music everywhere. It's fantastic. And then I'm uh, in, in my senior year and dad goes, uh, hey, we're moving to Nashville. <laughs> <laughs> and he had another job offer and I'm like, Nashville? Yeah. That's hee-haw. Mm -hmm. I ain't leaving Miami, you know? Yeah. So they leave and I stay and live with my friend uh, who I'm in the band with, Dean Guadagna, and I stay. The last six months of my senior year, I stayed with him and his family just so I could graduate from my school. And then my parents came back for graduation and then I hopped in the car and <laughs> moved here. And <laughs> kicking and screaming, you know? I don't want to leave Miami. Yeah, because Nashville. It, what? Yeah. It would have been culture shock. Yeah. Of course, I get here, and within a couple days, I'm making music friends, and I go to Peabody College for my freshman year. Don't know how to read any music. Within two months, I'm playing Via Lobos on you know classical guitar, and yeah, I got all like crazy about classical guitar, watching my nails, you know. And then my freshman year, uh, Peabody merges with Vanderbilt, and I find out my tuition the following year is going to quadruple. Right. So I hop across the street to Belmont, mm -hmm. which ended up being another stroke of lucky genius in my life because I could major on electric guitar there. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, I have a studio. Whoa. Yeah. So yeah. Was, was John Pell the head yeah. of the guitar department at John, that point? John was there. He'd probably only been there maybe two or three years. And, um, and John is still in my life. Like, I go to him, yeah. you know, all the time. I send him things I'm writing. What am I doing wrong? Can't, you have time for a master class? You know, he did one for me about three, three or four years ago, and we just played. He said, I'm not charging you. Just come over and play, you know. And we played for like three or four hours. I filmed the whole thing, took notes. He's, he's amazing. I'm going to be doing something over there in October with um, the Belmont Big Band. And uh, they're taking one of my songs and arranging it for like 25 pieces. Wow. And then I'm going to do a couple of Pat Metheny charts. And I definitely bit off more than I could chew there. Yeah. I'll be working on that every day. What were some of the things that you learned at Belmont? Belmont was amazing. Um, I Everything that I use now, I think I learned there. John, he said something to me that was really amazing my first year there. He said, I'm not worried about you as a player. You're going to make it, which is like the most encouraging thing right. that a kid can ever hear from your teacher. Mm -hmm. I'm not worried about you. You're going to make it. Yeah. I'm just going to give you some tools so you can start working. Yeah. I'm like, well, yeah, I want to work. <laughs> yeah. What were some of these tools? For instance, like getting into like modal stuff and how to improvise. He's like, do you know your major scales? Yeah. He goes, then you know your modes. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, I don't know what to do on this chord, you know. What do I do? He goes, well, when you see one of those sharp 11 chords, major 7 sharp 11, you're, that's the 4 chord. So what are you playing? I'm like, well, that's a B-flat sharp 11. He goes, well, then what key are you in? I'm like, I guess that would be F. He goes, all right, 
start playing an F over that chord, you know. So it was like, okay, great shortcuts. Yeah. Not really a shortcut. And obviously, if you're just playing an F scale, it's going to sound boring. So you have to figure out your own combo. But just to like, just to get in the ball game where you're just not going to be lost. Like, what, what are my options, you know, with these chords? And just the mountain of theory that he gave me was just unbelievable. It was all very practical. Yeah. I, I, he would show me something and I could put it to work that day. So it was never really about sound or, or even technique, you know. It was just about, check this out, knowledge. Here's what you do. Um, crazy chord inversions, a lot of a lot of which you would never really use, but you know, here's here's how you play an F major seven in sixteen different places on the neck, you know. But you learned the neck of the guitar. Yeah, yeah. Like people will play it, you know. They, they, there's an F major seven. Now take this note and invert it to the bottom string. Oh, you know. Yeah. Now move that chord up. And then move that note to the bottom. You know, a lot of that is, I guess if you were doing solo guitar, it'd probably be a little more useful. In a band, you're not going to want those kind of yeah. thick voicings. It was just, it was a mountain of stuff that I got. It was, it was like getting a Berklee College of Music education, but here in Tennessee. Belmont is also, there's tons of great, you know, musicians always kind of coming through there. Who were some of the other musicians that you came up with? You know, so the Belmont Mansion used to be, it was basically a big empty building practically when I was there. Mm -hmm. And uh, except the Belmont Reasons would rehearse there, which was Belmont's kind of, it wasn't a jazz band. It was, essentially it was a rock band that could play country and show tunes. They did all kinds of stuff. So somebody said, man, you, come over and check out the reasons. So I walk in there, and it's Dan Huff on guitar. My first wow. day of school. Yeah. I met Dan, met Gordon Kennedy, my first few days there. Uh, Gary Lunn, Kurt Howell. Uh, I really met a lot of people there that I still run into day in, day out. You, you know? still work with. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My, I remember my first, uh, this was a guitar class. At the end of class, John holds up Van Halen 1, and he goes, and if you guys don't have this record, you need to go to the record store today and get it, because that record had just come out. Yeah. And I was like, man, I know I'm in the right place. Yeah. When this guy is going to talk to me about Joe Pass and Van Halen. Yeah. I was, I really love that because you know, I went there for the deeper knowledge, you know, the classical and, and jazz, jazz bow info, but, but he, he was quite happy to talk about ZZ Top, you know, yeah. and why they were such a great little band, you know. Okay, so after Belmont, so how did you get your first gig? Well, all throughout college, <clears throat> I was playing, I uh, played in a band called Contraband, which had, uh, it's like a 10 or 11 piece horn band. Uh, Chris McDonald 
trombone player and a ranger. So it was like heavy duty funk. Mm -hmm. And, but we played everything from like Michael Jackson off the wall, Luther Vandross to like Earth, Wind, Earth, Wind and Fire, a lot of Chicago, Rick James. I mean, we, and we played pretty much every fraternity and sorority in the South. Uh, eventually, I wanted a bigger paycheck. Uh, so I got into a smaller band. I was in that band through graduation. Also, simultaneously in college, every summer, I was, a mus I was a, uh, in a band at Opryland. Oh my goodness. Which was another place where every musician in town funneled through. Yeah. Every great, you know, horn player, you know. Yeah. And just to back up, so there, there used to be an amusement park mm -hmm. in Nashville called Opryland. And of course, like most amusement parks, they had you know different bands and and uh, you know performances going on. So, so what type of music were you playing at Opryland? Because it wasn't just country music being played there. No, uh, the first band I was in was called Maxi, and they were like, it was essentially top forty. So like, that summer, uh, it was the summer of eighty. I was working on the Skyride, and I would go over and watch them on my breaks. And Gene Miller, who is my longtime friend, and we're in a band together now, um, he was leaving that band to join Barbara Mandrell. I went over and auditioned in my bright green pants and yellow shirt Skyride outfit, and I got the gig. So I went from like working on a ride to being in a band, and that was amazing. And I basically did four summers there. Um, which was incredible. It basically got me into the Nashville network of, I had joined the union and all mm -hmm. that. Graduated school, uh, toured around with the Top 40 band, and Dan Huff recommended me to Michael W. Smith. And I didn't know Michael's music at all. I knew some of Amy Grant's stuff. I was, you know, vaguely familiar. Because this was also kind of a new, you know, kind of subset of music. This contemporary Christian music was kind of a new, a newer it, thing. It was a newer thing, and I'd sort of been hip to it because I was at Belmont, and right. so a lot of my friends were involved in it. Um, and I had gone out, I think I'd done a couple dates with an artist named David Meese, but I was not really clued into Michael's music. And uh, I guess every year uh, Michael was doing some sort of Christmas show and Dan's late father, Ron, was conducting. And they were hanging out. And he goes, Dan, I need a guitar player. I'm, I'm going to be doing my first solo tour. He goes, call Chris. So th this is Dan has done this a dozen times in my career. Yeah. And gotten me this or that he's he's yeah. been that guy yeah and uh so michael calls me i go to his house and we get along famously and on day one he starts calling me raj which is what everybody calls me hmm. raj regis yeah raj he yeah. he gave me that name yeah. and almost everybody calls me raj nobody calls me chris and then we're we're getting along we're having a great talk and then we do a little playing just him and i and he starts playing, and I'm like, who is this guy? He's like, 
He's incredible, you know. This guy's like Genesis. <laughs> Everything he was writing was just like so deep and you know, he's having a conversation with you and laughing while his hands are over here composing a symphony. You know, yeah. he's that guy. Wow. And uh, so I was, I was blown away by that. And then we start rehearsing, and it's like, Claire Brothers is coming in for production. And I'm like, who is this guy? Yeah. I went from a nightclub act to, like, national tour. Yeah. Unbelievable. Did you just listen to the album to learn the guitar parts and such? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, the guitarist that I was emulating was, well, Dan had played on those records, uh, a guy named John Gowen, who, he was, you know, one of the Nashville session aces. From day one of rehearsals, Smitty's like, yeah, learn the record and then forget the record. We're going to do something else. You know? Wow. Um, Feel free to reinvent the part. Yeah. He, every sound check was pretty much a rehearsal, and there was probably a new segue to learn almost every day. He was very, he still is, you know, he likes to keep things fluid, you know, so there's no stagnation. Let's, I'm not sure about that segue we did last night. Let's write another one, you know, and he'd yeah. come up with some other, like, you know, something that sounded like, you know, Kansas. Yeah. You know, that's Prague. so yeah, that's so unusual because you know most most artists just want to have the, the album reproduced over and over again live. Well, I think there was probably certain key licks, you know, that certain themes. Right. And there might have been a few solos that I played. I mean, we used to do this song called Tearing Down the Walls, and I loved what Dan played on the record. So I learned it. You know, a lot of what Dan played, I, I just don't have the facility, still known, to reproduce. So I'd have to invent something, yeah. some other way to do it, because I, yeah. I just never had, you know, shredder chops like that. Like, yeah. That guy's just, just crazy shred. But, you know, Smitty allowed me to sort of make that gig my own. And I'm really grateful for that. He's a really important person in my life, his older brother. Yeah. And, uh, he took me around the world, and which, because him and Amy were managed by the same management company, eventually I, I did the Amy tours, yeah, because I was in the family. So a couple, Actually, yeah. So a couple years after being with Michael, you started working with Amy. Yeah, I did two tours with Michael: um, the Friends tour and then the Big Picture tour. And then she released the Lead Me On record about the same time that he released the Eye to Eye record. So I actually did a third tour, I, the first tour with Michael, uh, with Amy, Michael was the opening act. So I played for both on that oh my tour. Goodness. So I did, I actually did three tours in the 80s with Michael. Yeah. Although the third one was really, I was in her band. And then he stayed on stage and played th throughout her set. Because he'd written half her songs, right? Yeah. So did that yeah. did that wear you out playing with with two acts? Heck no. No. I was twenty eight. I could have been up there for nine hours a night. I, yeah. Uh, you know, I was touring the world, and you know, making great money, and bought my first two houses on those tours. You know, I would. I I totally knew I was in a great. Place. I always dreamed about playing in front of thousands of people, and tonight 
15,000 in an arena. I mean, yeah. it's just like, this is childhood dreams, you know? Yeah. And there are great bosses and great people. Basically, those two artists gave me a studio career. They started hi hiring me, you know, to be on their records, and those were the first records I started working on. Yeah. It was all through the CCM world. Um, Rich Mullins was my first master recording. I went in to sing. And then, you know, uh, two of the guys in Michael W.'s band, Mark Heimerman and Chris Harris, were producers. So we'd come off the road and they were producing stuff. So I was, I, I got crash course in studio life. And then uh, the Kenny Loggins thing happened. I was, I was on the second tour with Amy Hart in Motion. I had signed a publishing deal with Sony, West Coast. And I went out there to sign my contracts, meet everybody, and uh, I got signed as a songwriter. And my publisher, Deirdre O'Hara, goes, hey, let's go upstairs to uh, Columbia Records. I want you to meet, I want you to meet Bobby Columbia. And Bobby was the original drummer of Blood, Sweat, and Tears. And after their phenomenal success, Columbia, which was their label, drafted him in as an A&R guy. So he's like A&R guy and he's also in a band. Wow. And subsequently in his career, he produced Jocko's first record. I mean, he brought Jocko to fame. And, uh, and then he went on to like produce Pages, which later became Mr. Mister. And you know, Bobby's had such an illustrious career. He now manages Chris Bodie. Um, so I meet Bobby, and uh, I had a dat tape of my songs. Mm -hmm. Serious songs. And he puts the dat in, he goes, is that you singing? I'm like, yeah. Is that you playing guitar? I'm like, yeah. And these are your songs? Yeah. You want a gig with Kenny Loggins? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it was right about the time where I was doing my last 10 shows of the year with Amy. I get the gig with Kenny, just like that. Yeah. I go to Kenny's house, same kind of thing like meeting Michael. We, we sit around and talk. Yeah. And then we do some playing. Great. No rehearsal. I walk in for my first gig, no rehearsal. And that's also some fairly complicated it ain't three chord rock no which I love yeah. but this this is like really inside parts and and that's how that's how I was able to sort of make a, a West Coast connection and I come back to the Amy gig while I'm just been hired by Kenny and I'm like Kenny I gotta honor these dates I got a dozen dates to do great and I come back in the spring and I'm like, Kenny, I'm having a kid. I, I love this job, but I need six weeks in the summer to, to be home for my son's birth. Absolutely. I'm going to get you a sub, and as soon as you're ready to come back, I need you back. Wow. Like, just the coolest. But somewhere on the Amy tour, those last dozen dates, Tony Brown comes out to hear Amy 
at Starwood Auditor uh, Amphitheater, which is no longer there. Mm -hmm. And I sang a duet with Amy. Coincidentally, the song that went to number one duet with Peter Cetera and Amy Grant, yeah. a song that I'm playing now. Uh, and I sang Cetera's part. Yeah. And Tony's out in the crowd, and I see him after the show. I'd never met him. He's like, I love your voice. What are you doing next week? I'm, I'm your dude. And within three months, I'm on Vince, Ariba, Winona. I mean, Tony was producing everybody back yes. then. So I had no country music connections. Just because he came to a show, um, st I, I, I start basically singing on all these country records. Right. Thank you, Tony Brown. Yes. You know? <laughs> and it's, it's basically that. My life has been that way. Never had a business card, you know. Yeah. Your business card is the last record or gig or tour that you were on or the DVD that you got to be a part of. Right. Yeah. It's just been like magic. <laughs> We haven't really covered yet. But we've kind of we've kind of briefly kind of skimmed over is singing. So mm -hmm. how important has singing been to your career? It's really been the thing driving it in a way. Um, I have no training as a singer. But I've got a lot of training on guitar. Like I've really had to work for it on guitar. Singing was just kind of this thing that I knew I had when I was a kid. Um, and I th it started because of my love of show tunes, you know, like I was saying earlier, and learning how to jump into character, because a lot of that, a lot of the Broadway plays was a lot of, you know, melodramatic, overhyped style of singing. Yeah. Um, I got into it pretty early on and sang my way through high school. When I got to college, I actually forgot about it for a while. I was so into guitar and so focused on it. A friend of mine in college, Kurt Howell, um, who later uh, was in a band called Southern Pacific with John McPhee. This was after the Doobies had broken up. Mm -hmm. Kurt was a really great songwriter, is, and. Um, great piano player, great singer, and he would bring me into Belmont studio anytime he was recording. And 
So one day he heard me sing and he goes, he said, you need to start singing. You need to sing. And at that point, I realized I was a singing guitar player. I wasn't a guitar player who sang. I realized that my main strength was making both things happen. A lot of great guitar players. There's a lot of great singers. There's not a lot of people who do both. Right. You know, and so I had the good fortune of being a guy who could solo and play and also be a lead singer, you know, a high tenor, you know. And the guy who I replaced at Opryland, Gene Miller, I mean, we're both cut from the same cloth. We're both high tenors, hopefully can play a mean guitar, you know. And so I've always worked on both. Pretty much every gig that I've ever had was the selling factor was that I was a guy that could do both. I, I always tell anybody um, who's kind of coming up in the biz now, who's a guitar player, at least even if you don't think you have a good voice, learn, learn how to sing some parts. It'll make you, you know, more employable. Yeah. For sure. It doesn't have to be amazing or perfect. Try to get it as in tune as you can. Because a, a lot of what they want is some density up on stage. And, um, vocal density. Vocal density, you know. Yeah. Um, this, is, this is pre the era of, you know, having tracks, because everybody has tracks now. And usually the live vocal is a double of what's coming off the stage. But I always, I always encourage players who have never sung to give it a whirl. And, and I actually have two or three friends now who are in the last four or five years who've worked on it and it's really helped them uh, in their career to expand a little bit. Yeah. You know. So what do you tell them to do to work on their, their vocals? Learn something you love. What, it doesn't have, I, I never direct them to one thing or another. I just like, mm -hmm. what, what is it that you like? So singing lead or singing harmony or what? Sing, or whatever, whatever it is, yeah. wherever your ear gravitates to. Some, some people don't really hear a, a lead vocal. They hear harmony. Okay. You know? Other people who are lead singers can't sing harmony. You know, they don't mm -hmm. hear harmony. Um, they can hear the melody. What, whatever it is that you gravitate to, um, give it a whirl. Just do your best. J mm -hmm. Try to learn it. For me growing up, I would, you know, I had three major, post my fascination with show tunes, I had three major vocal food groups that I went to, John and Paul, the Beatles, and the, which was a wealth of vocal information and characters. And McCartney has 10 different voices, you know, that he can use. Um, Jackson 5, basically Michael Jackson. And then Marvin Gaye was the other guy. When I heard uh, Let's Get It On, I must have been 12, and I paid a lot of attention to that, that song and heard it through the grapevine. But, but Let's Get It On was like a wealth of info on how to make your voice rule. And between those three, and then 
certainly uh, Paul Rogers with Bad Company. Those, those, those were like my heroes growing yeah. up, um, vocal heroes. Later on, I was really into Steve Walsh with Kansas because I thought he, the guy just had incredible range, super muscly tone, um, very clear. There's, you know, a, a lot of those guys were were beacons for me. Follow that. Yeah. So, from from having you know seen you perform with a lot with a, a number of different acts, and and watching you, it it seems like you know vocally you kind of mimic who you're singing with. Mm -hmm. Is that, is that part of blending in with their with their vocals? Mm -hmm. Is that yeah. I, I get a vocal lesson every night that I'm out with Satara. Yeah. Um, Peter's got, you know, one of the most distinctive voices. I mean, in two notes, you're like, well, that's the guy. That's, yeah. It's, it's the same with Kenny Loggins, you know. Yeah. Um, I'm, you know, those are my two gigs right now. Yeah. And it's a vocal clinic for me every time I go out on the stage with them. Yeah. And, um, and the one thing I've noticed is... They're very, um, there's a re they're relaxed. They may not look relaxed when they're gutting it out, but there's a, there's a relaxation and a, a laser beam quality to get into the pitch that's really, really amazing, I think. Watching those two guys has probably been the most influential thing for me up on stage. Yeah. I uh, remember seeing you in the mid-90s perform with Michael McDonald. Mm -hmm. He's another one, geez. Yeah. And, of course, when you were sing singing, of course, you were kind of, you know, mimicking him to a degree because yeah. that's what, what you're called on to do because he sang his own background vocals on a lot of his records. Feet. He's probably the most imitated male vocalist of the last 35 years. Yeah. I mean... Everybody has that, you know, they're all going to, you know, they're all going <laughs> to go to that. You know? yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's hilarious that you bring it up because so two summers ago, we were in Chicago shooting a thing at Soundstage for Kenny Loggins. And it was, yeah. it was a kind of a career retrospective. And he had a couple special guests. And Michael was one of them. So we're doing um, This Is It. Yeah. Right? And there were probably... Three or four guys in the in the band who sang, plus Kenny singing, plus Michael McDonald singing, and we get to the part that you think that maybe it's all. Yeah, and it's like at rehearsal, I'm looking around and I'm like, we're all doing the Michael McDonald, and there yeah. he is. Yeah, he's right there. Yeah. Why are we, we're all trying to be him? Yeah. and he's here. Yeah. <laughs> There, obviously, there are some key things to, to keeping your voice up, you know, and instead of, you know, and we see so many people that, that lose their voice as they get older. Yeah. In my case, the fact that I've got road voice is a good thing. My voice is constantly in use. Mm -hmm. It's probably tired 90% of the time just because I get in and out of airplanes. So you kind of got to water up. I, I'm probably more conscious now of drinking more water, which I've always been horrible at. Um, and then trying to get some sleep, you know, which is 
can be difficult. I'm, I'm not a great sleeper. I'm good on six hours. I'm just excited about life, so it's hard for me to stay in bed. Yeah. Uh, I'm just that kind of, I've got really content and, um, and I just want to get up and do things. So when I hit the hay, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm pretty like, let's get to sleep. I can't wait to wake up. Earlier, you talked about, we were talking about chord voicings, and you talked about how uh, you were playing inversion, and you were playing, and you had inverted, like, the, the note you were playing on the high down to the low note, and you said that doesn't work in a, in, a, in a bigger band. So tell us a little bit more about, you know, what type of chord voicings and how big of chords that you would tend to use in a band, because so many times we learn these big chords, like we learn these bar chords, and big open chords, but those tend to not work in a, in a band, you know? Yeah, well, and it depends on the size of the band. You know, if I'm in a trio, if I'm Andy Summers with the police, yeah. I got all kinds of room. I can do anything I want, right. you know? And so I'm not gonna shy away from bigger voicings. Right. Uh, although he's the king of like two and three note chords too. That's a, the minimalist side of him is yeah. amazing. So, but I mean, if you're in a trio, you can play bigger voicings because you got more room to shine. Uh, as many horn bands that I've been in since I was a kid, you know, and I loved Earth, Wind & Fire, so the, the whole skanking thing and like small chords and it's all like two and three note stuff and, yeah. you know, That's all real, like, a lot of muting, small chords. So when I'm, when I'm playing with a horn band, I tend to play that way. Really, really probably never more than three notes going on in a yeah. chord. Sometimes just two, you know. Because it pokes out a little bit more, and it fits. Right. Keyboards are taking care of so much space. The horns are spelling out the chords, so the guitar has to, like, find its yeah. poke. So that's what you do with horns. What would when you're playing with Kenny Loggins or Peter Cetera? Would you still play? You're not going to do as I mean, you do some funky things, but what kind of chord voicings and shapes would you use in that? What well, depends who's playing and at what point in the song, you know? Yeah. Like, um, so we do one of one of Kenny's songs. We do is uh, "Celebrate Me Home," and uh, Scott Bernard, yeah. a great guitarist, who's also been on the show. Yeah, he's been yeah. on the show. Yeah. Well, Scott's my bandmate there, and um, a lot of what I do now with Kenny is uh, I don't do my, Scott's doing my my former thing. He, he, right. He's kind of the, the hotshot guy, yeah. and I'm doing more of the support stuff. So if he's playing a solo, uh, like so the big... Keyboard player is going to be playing some of those big fat chords. Right. So I remember in rehearsal, I just started playing these big fat chords. And Kenny goes, Hey, he's got that covered over there. Yeah. Tighten it up. So now he's got me going. 
different range yeah and so it's orchestrated yeah. you know Keb Mo was that really great at that too like I did a blues residency with him we played like the first Monday of every month and we were at the Fontanelle like a 300 seater and it's blues right so you're like well how how arranged can this be well very arranged mm -hmm. you know do you have tremolo on your sound, Chris? Yeah, I'm like, he goes, well, Kevin So back there, he's, he's got that tremolo up on, on his roads. It's getting awfully around here. Yeah. Why don't you take that, take off. that off? And uh, and then give me some skank, you know, fl float up here, because he's got the thick thing covered. Yeah. Uh, he handed me an MXR five-band graphic. He goes, right here? This is your best friend. He goes, use this, you know. And man, I would notch notch out what needed to be notched out. He could look over and go, man, notch out some of that 100 hertz, you know. Give me some more of that 500 when you take a solo, you know. Yeah. It's very, it was another great education. Because you think it is blues, it could be loose and, you know. Yeah. No, let's, let's, let's notch it up a minute. Let's let's all be conscious of each other's sound, and not step on what he's doing. You know. Yeah, that's a that's a whole nother level of of playing when you start thinking about parts and staying out of each other's sonic, you know, areas. Yeah. Uh, with Cetera, it's two guitars, two keyboards, bass drums. Tanya on vocals and Perk, a lot of information. Yeah. And lots of chordal information. Yeah. So Tony Obrada, the other guitarist and I, we're all, we we have like telepathy. You know, we can just figure out what we're doing. It's almost like we don't even talk about it anymore. Mm -hmm. I, I see where he's going and I immediately shoot for another av avenue on the neck that he's that he's not covering. If he's down low, I'll I'll come up here and play the arpeggios, vice versa. Sometimes we do stuff together, and that's, whoa, two lines in unison, you know, fantastic. Yeah. And we do this song called uh, Baby, What a Big Surprise. And, uh, and we do this line. doing in unison and it's humongous you know um, a, a lot of it is trial trial by error you know that was that was Satara's idea play that line together because on the record it's like a it was the horns doing the line so when we do it together we're emulating a horn section yeah it's I, I love I love very well arranged stuff live so recently you've been turning with Peter Cetera and with yeah. Kenny Loggins, mm -hmm. and you, you've kind of been playing some of uh, Kenny's parts and doing some more, you know, filling in lately with him. But in town, you have a band that you perform with called the Nashville Alternators. Mm -hmm. Tell us a bit about them. Well, we're all each other's best friends, and we've all been sort of what I call the alley-oop. We've been throwing each other gigs for, you know, 30-plus years yeah. in our careers. 
And uh, the gig, the band formed by happenstance, um, the Great Nashville Flood of 2010. I call it the Great Equalizer because we all had our stuff parked in the same place and we all lost gear. Yeah. And made Nashville one big level playing field. Um, there was a benefit uh, about three weeks after that at a cigar shop in Franklin called Stogie's, and it was a Music Cares event. And basically, uh, a bunch of us showed up with acoustic guitars and no rehearsal, like, you, do you know how to play uh, this song? And uh, let's do this song, and you know, yeah, just calling tunes. And we had so much fun, and just so happened that Bobby Blazers, my best pal, he was there. Uh, Gene Miller was there. I was there. And we were like, good grief, with no rehearsal, I think we know 100 songs. Let's do this again sometime. Yeah. And the next time was, we got a gig at 3rd and Lindsley. So it ended up being uh, Gene Miller and myself, Bobby, um, Akeel Thompson on bass, I think Akeel's now with Little Big Town. Um, and the late Tom Rohde on percussion. Mm -hmm. uh, and a friend of mine, Carl Hergesell, who now plays with Kenny. And he was on keys. And just by happenstance, it looked like our song list was basically everything from the 70s, which is when we were all kids and stuff we came up with. So. The unofficial parameter of the Nashville Alternators is that our song list starts in about 1969 and I think it ends in 1984. I think the, the newest song we do is Sledgehammer. <laughs> <laughs> everything else is like, everything from the OJs to Steely Dan to Stevie Wonder to McCartney and Wings, Blood, Sweat and Tears, um, Chaka Khan, um, if it's from that classic era, what I call classic rock era, yeah, we do it, and uh, it's not within any one particular genre. You know, we uh, we got fortunate enough to do all the Titans home games in 2013, and right about that time, Bobby booked a gig for us uh, as a rhythm section up in Cleveland, and there was a horn section. From that day on, we had horns in our band. Now we have horns every time yeah. we go out and play. And we, we got some of the greatest guys. It's usually Roy Agee, amazing musician, trombonist. Vinnie Sieschelski on trumpet, Tyler Summers. But we, we have a whole host of subs that'll come in. And not too long after we started, Kim got in the band. And then we had, so had Kim was not there from the day one. Um, but within a year, Kim was in there, and then we had a front line, you know. So, and with Kim, you know, we started doing uh, Rock and Roll by Zeppelin, and she's singing it. And uh, she does the Jackson 5, and uh, she's really cool about picking dude songs. She'll reinterpret songs sung by guys. DeMarco Johnson on keyboards 
and harmonica, and he's basically a child of Stevie Wonder and Billy Preston. You know, the guy's just wow. total, I went to the school of Stevie Wonder mm -hmm. and Preston. Incredible keyboard player, great harmonica. He came to see us at our first gig, and I, from the stage, I went, DeMarco, you got your harmonica with you? Why, yeah. So he came up, played harmonica with us, and on the stage I went, you're in the band. And he's been, you know, it, it, it just kind of happened out of that. And so we're all each other's best pals, and we do it for the love. And yeah. it, it's, it's really become a thing now where we have um, a rhythm section where we can read each other's minds. And we, we're down that avenue of unspoken magic and cool things that I love. And there was a whole lot of years where I just did not get out and play live locally, locally because I was so busy with Keith. Yeah. In particular, when I was with Keith Urban, you know, be a hundred gigs a year, and yeah. you're out all the time. So he does a lot of shows. Yeah, I, I've never played as much locally in a club than I'm doing right now. Like it's really reminding me of why I got into this in the first place. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the energy that I'm feeling from playing live in town. Reminded me of being a teenager when and being in Miami where I was just You know, you're just living for the next gig waiting mm -hmm. For that opportunity to go play for us. It's a way to like harness all that Love that we had for the music as teenagers and doing those songs that got us Into wanting a career in music. Let's talk a little bit about gear. Yeah, so many times you're doing fly dates and you end up with a, like a, a rental deluxe reverb mm -hmm. or something like that. Today we've got a, a, a deluxe reverb for you to use and uh, tell us a bit about this Strat that you have. Well, uh, kind of the go-to guitar throughout my career has been a Strat just because it can do so many things. I got away from Strats uh, in the 2000s when I was with Keith because it was such a It's surprising that I was on a country gig, but it was all about Les Paul's and Les Paul juniors. Yeah, and 335s and But with the Cetera thing and, and and even with Loggins, I'm having to ape 40 years of guitar history So and then getting on a plane I got two options, you know, I got the double gig bag um can't bring a lot of guitars. Yeah. So Strat is the one that's kind of, I've got to cover, you know, with Cetera, I've got to cover Terry Kath, yeah. Mike Landau, Steve Lukather, Chris Pinnock, all mega Strat guys, you know, at one time or another in their career. So it seems like it's the right guitar flavor for the gig. Um, I, I used to bring this one and my Eric Johnson uh, Strat, because uh, I think they're the best Strats that Fender makes yeah. in their signature line. They're amazing guitars. Eric Johnson's amazing guitar. But then I was like, well, I got two of the same thing. So I started bringing my Les Paul. Uh, I've got a 
Deluxe um, that was in the flood. Yeah. And Joe Glazer brought it back to life. Same electronics. Yeah, that's amazing. They dried up. Yeah. You know, that's amazing. That guitar swell, swelled up a good quarter of an inch at the yeah. body. And Joe goes, well, put it in a bag of rice, put it in a trash bag with rice, and come see me in about four months. Yeah. So that flood happened in the beginning of May. In late September, I bring him the guitar, and lo and behold, that rice had soaked up all the water. The guitar shrunk back. It was all cracked and messed up. I said, Joe, seal it. Leave it looking, leave it looking messed up. Yeah. And... Uh, Neck stayed true, amazing guitar. Same mini humbuckers, they dried out. It's, I, call, I say it has a Cumberland River sound in it now, you know, because yeah. there's a lot of water. And it's still holding up. Amazing. And I, yeah. It might have, you know, maybe I'm being all voodoo about it. I think it sounds better. Yeah. There, I've talked to a lot of players that feel like the guitars that survived, they sounded better afterwards. There's, there's just something there, yeah. you know, and maybe it's my perception or my... Maybe I'm putting some mojo on it or something, but... So now I bring uh, this Jeff Beck Strat. I have a Duesenberg Double Cat, which is an amazing guitar. Um, I've been bringing that out here recently, and that covers it. Um, but the Strat is so versatile, and I can go to the uh, bridge pickup, and I... Usually for a solo, I tend to roll off the high so it's not so strident. And, um, and then get all my magic from pedals, you know. Yeah. I find the Deluxe uh, is a great amp. It's just a great blank, clean slate for pedals. It's, it's become my favorite amp. Yeah. My favorite go-to. Never met the amp before. Show up, back line is supplied. That's my favorite go-to amp. Yeah. You know, I, I think I even prefer it more than an AC30, which I used to get all the time, or the Hot Rod Deluxes. Although I, I now, now I hear the Michael Landau reissue. They've, they've yeah, reissued yeah. the Hot Rods. I'd like to check one of those out. But generally, a, a Deluxe. And um, this is not the board I bring out on the road. This is my in-town board, but um, I tend to, kind of get, I get the same sound with whatever board. But this is my in-town session and also my live rig board. Um, I've got, so I go into this radial. This, when I was with Kelly Clarkson, I had the most involved um, rig that I've ever had live. I had two Category 5, 50-watt stacks in stereo for anything that was imaging, ping-pongs, you mm -hmm. know, anything that required stereo imaging. And then I had a Marshall uh, uh, JCM 800 early 2000s reissue going into a boogie cabinet. And so if I was on channel one of this radio, it was basically the stereo imaging. I get to the chorus of a song, just Marshall, dry, no yeah. effects. Yeah. So I had effects in stereo and a Marshall mono, and usually on the choruses mm -hmm. of every song. 
Uh, but that was a bus tour with a tech and a great tech. And so I was, I could have a complicated setup. These days, it's get on an airplane. There's your mono amp. Yeah. So I never use that side um, for studio. But I go out of there. I think the way it's routed is it hits the wah first. And then these three stages of overdrive. Um, I've got the Guthrie Trap pedal, which is pretty much one of my favorite if not my favorite overdrive on it. Usually I set that up for um, Pete Townsend. That's my basic um, power chord. And then I usually will layer one of these, either OCD or the Zen Drive or this BB preamp over it for a solo. Cool thing about this radial is it has a mid or gain switch and you can go plus five or plus 10 dB, which sometimes I don't even hit another overdrive on top of the Guthrie trap. Sometimes I'll just, just hit, hit the, the mid boost. boost. Yeah. And five dB of mid boost is, That's it's pretty much like you've just kicked in another overdrive on top of the amp you yeah. have. So that ends up sounding, let's see. And here's, it's a little subtle. Let's see what. Yeah. It's really cool. But it, but in a mix, you know that's gonna that's gonna pop through more because the, yeah. the added mid range. Yeah, the added mid range, yeah. which is usually when I'm gonna do a solo live, I like to have, you know, what I call my basic Pete Townsend A chord overdrive, and then another one that's either geeked out with mid-range and the EQ just to make it poke. Because on Strat, you know, I'm looking for like, you know, 250 hertz to about 600 hertz. I'm trying to pump that up, maybe up to 1K yeah. um, for a solo. Now, whichever way I do it. It's, it's weird though, I never, <laughs> I probably need to bring that little MXR graphic that I was talking about with, that Keb had uh, given me and start using it on the road. It's, it's just, it's a challenge because I have to like put my, my pedal board goes in my luggage with my Levi's and I got to keep it under 50 pounds. Yeah. And that's, that's a trick. Yeah, it I is. I mean, I can, I can now pick up my bag and go, I'm a pound and a half over. Yeah. I'm so you're used so to used flying to... now that yeah. I know, you know. Um, but Delta treats me good and I got the status to have a heavier bag, but I try to keep it light anyway. Yeah. Um, the Zen Drive's a great, you know, the massive Robin Ford and Larry Carlton fan that I am, and I've never owned a Dumble Overdrive, but Zen Drive is, uh, I think it's Hermita Audio, and yeah. they do a really good job of uh, emulating the Dumble. Uh, I don't really use it for a lot of mega distortion. It's kind of more of a... <laughs> Kind of more of a, a cleaner um, overdrive. Uh, it really works great with humbuckers. Like, if I've got a 335 on, I'll, I'll tend to like step on this pedal. Um, the OCD, I love it. It's another one of those. Um, <laughs> 
use it for for Black Friday. I use it for Black Friday. Um. <laughs> Trick with that pedal, turn the volume up, drive back. I'm not so into, actually on all my overdrives, I tend to park that overdrive at not much past noon and then crank up the output so that it's slamming the front end to the, to the, the amp. It's, to me, that's the fattest, wooliest, ballsiest sound um, usually never really, unless I'm really trying to go for something extreme, I, ne I never really gain out any of my pedals. I'm not that kind of player. And then, so, uh, so I'm into the wah, into the three stages of overdrive, and into the Strymon timeline, which is unbelievable. I mean, this pedal board has been mostly unchanged for the last five or six years. And that timeline, it's great delay pedal, does a million things, reverse. And then uh, the last thing in my chain is, is an M13. I have two pedal boards uh, that are kind of configured like this with the M13 at the end. And the M13 basically has everything that Line 6 ever built in one, one case. So most of my uh, time and modulation uh, stuff is coming out of here. And, and the Strymon. Yeah. But uh, I love the M13 because it's got a looper and it's, you know, I, a lot of times I, when I'm practicing or learning something, I'll use that looper just to like get inside a part and figure some stuff out. Yeah. And um, so it's, it's become a pretty valuable part of my rig. You've got the, uh, one got of the old visual yeah. volume pedals. I love it. I love it. And uh, it really uh, came in handy um, uh, on the arena stuff that I was doing uh, with Keith Urban where, you know, these really dramatic, dynamic parts of the show where they just totally black out the stage. Yeah. And it's like, where am I? Yeah. Where? Well, I got this little puppy right here that can show me. You know, that was another thing about when I, before I got the gig with Keith, I was pretty much, a, all the knobs are full. They're all on one thing all night long. Within six months of being with him, I was all over my tone control. and I was never a guy that had a dirty sound and uh, all of a sudden, now I roll back the volume and I have a clean sound. Mm -hmm. I was never that guy. Yeah. You know, it was always, everything's up on the guitar and I use all these pedals. Seeing Keith in action, I was like, wow, that guy's just brilliant. He can just... He's a whiz with the, I, I don't know how to do the volume swell with the pinky thing. I'm not, I'm terrible at that. Jeff Beck's king, you know. Keith really reminds me of Beck. He's like Jeff hmm. on a country thing. It's, it's loud amps, just raging loud. And then a lot of, a lot of manipulation of tone. You know. Mike Landau's the same, another guy, man, that guy's constantly doing stuff. Working the controls. Working the controls. Beck is king at it. He's So I've been really trying to incorporate that into my guitar diet, just trying to figure out things. You know, I'm, I'm a little, I'm a lot better at it than I used to be. Even getting a, a clean sound, like uh, we do a Peter's, you know, one of his biggest hits is a... Uh, 
right? And and we don't do it on acoustic like the yeah. record. So I'm trying to get the most acoustic-y tone that I can. Well, I've learned that if I roll it on this strat from 10 to about nine, somehow it just takes a little bit of that, what can be strident, and I get more of a... And a lot of times I'll play the rhythm here on the neck. trying to get it to sound as close to an acoustic yeah. as I can. Without having to have one. Without having one. Tell us about this Duesenberg guitar. It's got, it's got some benders on that and, yeah. and such. Which I don't have engaged right now. I wish I, I could show you how cool and what this does. Um, yeah. You just don't need them for what you're doing right now. Yeah, for, for the Satera thing. Uh, although he does love pedal steel. Like, he loves it. Yeah. I, I, if I threw, if I actually threw this in somewhere in the show, he'd like, I want that every night, because yeah. I know him. He's now, did you get it. this when, back when you were playing with Keith to, to do some of the Bender no, um, stuff on that? Or? No, uh, the first guitar I, I ever got from Duesenberg was a star player, so it's basically kind of like a, looks like a Gretsch Duo Jet, less right. polish with an F-hole, and yeah. um, the in. The, the, the infamous Mike Campbell version, it, it's basically a star player with a cool blue paint right. job and the white racer stripe. It's, mm -hmm. But I have it in sort of like that Gretsch 6120 orange. Yeah. That I you know, it's really... So that was the first guitar that I ever got from them. And then I have an Imperial, which is a big arch top. Uh, very, very much a 6120-ish. Uh, slash Gibson 175, sort almost a hybrid of that, with their killer pickups that they make. Uh, and then I have this one. Uh, I've one of my best friends in life is Nathan Foley at Duesenberg USA. He's one of my best friends, guitar buddy, and uh, and and a life life friend. And um, so he's like, you want a double cap? So I got one of these maybe six, seven years ago, and um, with with these benders. Now I have a Telecaster V bender, mm -hmm. which is you know from the strap. There's a lever, right. and, and you can raise um, the pitch on the B string or the G string because I have both benders yeah. in that for simulated pedal steel stuff, which is great. That sounds very pedal steelish. Basically, yeah. you get all this without without having yeah. a bend. Um, on this guitar, that's all here. So it's no B bender. I'm hitting these levers with my pinky. Yeah. Um, the cool thing about this, as opposed to the B bender, is with a B bender, I can't play slide because your forearm muscles are engaged with moving the neck up and down so there's no control. With this thing, I can slide up to the note and then bend here. So it really That's slick. can simulate pedal steel. Yeah. And the fact these two, uh, you can assign them to any string. I mean, I go with the G and, and the B because those are the yeah. most used to simulate a steel. But um, 
the fact that I can play a slide up to the note and then bend it is really cool. It's really <laughs> amazing. How would you use this? I guess you would use this guitar to cover more of the Gibson ground when you're Gibson when you're, ground, yeah. yeah. When you're playing encore, yeah. When everything gets loud, ah, uh. yeah. <laughs> so it's your encore guitar. Encore, yeah. Yeah. Um, I kind of probably do most of the set on that guitar on the Strat. On a Strat, but I mean, um, with Kenny, uh, the encore is like four or five of his more rocking things. So I bring this guitar, I tune it down a whole step. Okay. Because he likes, uh, he likes some of these parts doubled, but it'll give you a different timbre. I'm basically playing the same chords that Scott's playing. Right. You know, but but you're playing a different inversion. I'm of playing it. a different down. inversion, yeah. and the whole guitar is down, so it's a bit deeper. I'm really getting acquainted with this guitar again. I'm, it, it, I hadn't had an opportunity to play it a lot, and I love it. I love it as I love all the Duesenberg guitars. They're all amazing, and I've got some. I got a really cool one coming in from Germany, called the Julia. That. As far as I know, it's their only guitar that they have in their line where you can uh, split the humbucker. So you can get a single coilish thing and, uh, and then full humbucker, which is, I think, incredibly useful yeah. for live. I used to never be a fan of just overdrive out of a single coil, but now I am. I think it was after the Eric Johnson guitar came out, I was like, you can get you can get love from your pedals and mid range. There's just some sort of complexity that comes out of single coils that I dig. I mean, I dig PAFs. They're all required food groups, but generally, I need a pickup that can be split. I think that's why I like the mini humbuckers on the on my deluxe because yeah, it still has more of that clarity. Still got and a and chime yeah. thing to it, you know. Yeah. That was one of the five years I was with Keith. I mean, early on in his career, he was pretty much the telly guy. And then somewhere around the Be Here record, it was Les Paul Jr.'s yeah. and Paul's yeah. and country music. And that really became the sound of country at the, by the mid-2000s. There's just a lot of Gibson love out there. There was several years where I kind of got away from a Strat, but I'm, I'm back in love with a Strat. We had a night off in Boston the other night, went to see Jeff Beck, and that's enough said. Yeah. That guy gets the thickest sound ever out of, out, of his, out of single coils, you know. Yeah. He's another guy, you know, the amp is just dimed. You, there's, maybe there's one point in the show where he's full on everything, but it would just be, it'd probably just be like, you yeah. know, an earthquake. He's, he's got that thing so dimed so that he can pull it back and control it from here, you know. It's like revving the governor all the way up on an engine, you know. Yeah, I'm back in love with strats, but the Duesenbergs are really kind of important to me because they do something that none of my Les Pauls or 335s do. There's just a different character, and um, their pickups are amazing. They're yeah. just amazing. I, I got to meet Joe Walsh a couple times 
He's a, he's a big Duesenberg user. But the Eagles came and played the CMA Awards four or five years ago. And I'm with Nathan, and he says, come on, I'll introduce you to Joe. So I met Joe, and the first thing he says to me is, Chris, do you know the delights of a Duesenberg humbucker? <laughs> and that was the next 10 minutes of my life. <laughs> Just hearing him talk about a humbucker on a Duesenberg. This is great. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, very cool, Chris. Well, I really <laughs> appreciate you being on the show. Oh, I love it. And, uh, you know, people should, you know, of course, go see Peter Cetera, see you play with him. And, and if you're, of course, in the Nashville area, see if the alternators are playing someplace and they yep. need to see you. We'll be playing City Winery uh, all fall. So, oh. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Thank you very much. This has been an audio presentation by TrueTone, TrueTone.com.